In the previous episode of Diverse Disruptors, we talked to Harlem Capital's Henri Pierre Jacques about the lack of black and brown people and women in the venture capital space and why it is important to change that. And also his goal to invest in 1,000 diverse founders in 20 years. But Harlem Capital can't invest in everyone. Remember, only 3% of venture capitalists are black. And Harlem Capital has a certain criteria when investing in a startup like having a market size greater than $1 billion, a strong team, and some traction. What if you are a black, brown, or a woman founder? Someone who's just starting out with a good idea, maybe a basic prototype, but no revenue, and based outside major cities. How does that founder raise capital? Their company would be too small for the Harlem Capitals of the world. It is already tough for diverse founders to raise capital, even if they have revenue and reside in major coastal cities. But what about a city like Milwaukee? Our guest Dana Guthrie on this episode of Diverse Disruptors aims to change that right here in Milwaukee. From 88.9 Radio Milwaukee, this is Diverse Disruptors, a podcast about leaders, entrepreneurs, and trailblazers who found their own way to innovate and did so with inclusion and accessibility. Dana Guthrie is the founder and managing director of Gateway Capital. She's also the first black woman in Wisconsin to raise in an investment round. Gateway Capital closed its first round of about $13 million to invest directly in the Milwaukee area. Gateway Capital will focus on pre-revenue startups. Yes, Harlem Capital may have a fund that's 10 times larger, but what Gateway is doing right here in Milwaukee might have a bigger impact on the overall ecosystem because she is filling a void where other venture capitalists don't even consider. Even though Dana and Henri Pierre Jacques are working in the venture capital space, their journeys to get there were quite different. To say Dana's path was unconventional would be an understatement. From growing up in a single-parent household in St. Louis to playing basketball at MSOE to holding two patents, Dana's story is one of challenges, inspiration, and determination. Before we talk about venture capital with Dana Guthrie, we wanted to start with where it all began. St. Louis, Missouri. Yeah, I grew up um, inner city St. Louis. Uh, ironically, a lot of similarities um, between St. Louis and, and Milwaukee. So inner city public school kid. Um, I ended up winning a lottery, actually, in uh, being able to get into a magnet school, which kind of changed the trajectory of, of my life, I believe, um, just exposing me to more uh, science and technology and a uh, different curriculum than I had seen in like my what my grade? Schools. What grade was that? That was third or fourth third. grade. I mean, before you went to that magnet school, what was what was the school like for you? Were, were... Yeah, before I went to the magnet yeah, yeah. school. Oh yeah, um, that was that was the the uh, you know what you would imagine a typical public school. So I was walking you know around the corner to school with my. Um, uncle who's three years older than me and um, you know some of my cousins we all went to the same so mm-hmm. you know your neighborhood friends are, are mm-hmm. in all the classes uh, that sort of thing um, and then it you know once I once I won that lottery and got to go to this magnet school I was no longer going to a school within the neighborhood mm-hmm. right so I was going to school with all different kids um, different backgrounds that's a very thing. diverse school uh, yeah, I believe it was. Yeah. Um, I think it was a it, it, it was um, it wasn't all white by by any means. Um, 
they they had like a gifted program and it, it's hard for me to remember all the details <laughs> of, but i remember that they had a gifted program and i tested into the gifted mm. program dana's mom naturally wanted the best for her and was the one to put her in the school lottery in the first place so i was raised mostly by uh, my, my mom she mm. was a single mother with dana's dad out of the picture she grew up close with her mom as you'll hear throughout her mom had a profound impact on Dana's life and career. And in a lot of ways, it started here with this magnet middle school. Was your mom very um, kind of like, you know, how some moms like very strict on the education? What was, what was, yeah. what was, how, how was she growing up? How did you? Yeah, my mom, my mom is like, first of all, let me say that my mom is like my biggest fan and worst critic all mm. in one. And she's always been that through school through sports through what i'm what i'm doing now um but she's like the hardest working woman i have mm. ever seen like sacrificed so much so the reason she had it she had me pretty young um and the reason that i spent a lot of time over my uh grandmother's house is because she was still going to school she got her i saw her get her associates i saw mm. her get her back going and get her bachelor's and mm. get her master's and she's just like this no-nonsense, uh, real cool woman. Like, on my social media, I post her every now and then. Just has this personality that everyone's attracted to. But, like, the hardest working, most sacrificing woman you will ever meet. Do you feel like that rubbed off on you? That, that Do you have that kind of work ethic now? Absolutely. Absolutely. I think, I think you know, um, for me, watching her, being old enough to see her, and to recognize the sacrifices that she made for me and for our family. Um, I had no choice but to make sure that, you know, I paid that back. I remember when, you know, when I was in college, there were times I'm in engineering school where I'm like, this this may not be for me. But I knew the sacrifices that my mother made to get me there. Mm-hmm. And for that reason, I'm like, I got to get through this. I got to mm-hmm. I got to finish this no matter you know, no matter what. So absolutely, I think that that rubbed off on me. I think she she showed me really early that uh, she used to always say to me, um, and I don't know if I was like a, a selfish kid or what, but she used to always tell me the world does not revolve around you. <laughs> no one cares. No one's going to give you anything. The world doesn't revolve around you. And I, I remember that sticking with me just like growing up. I'm like, every time you want to throw attention or you feel like, you know, you deserve something. Yeah, like ah, that's mine. It's like no one cares. The world <laughs> does not revolve around you. Go out and get it if you want it. Dana stayed at that magnet school for a few years and got good grades, but her teachers often said she needed to focus more in the classroom. Dana was a big talker, a kind of bit disruptive. Maybe it was some kind of career foreshadowing that she was meant to do her own thing. She took an interest in science and technology at a young age, maybe mostly out of necessity. I think my technical experience came from like being mischievous, breaking stuff and trying to fix it before my before my mom found out. Oh. <laughs> so like what so did like you a, like you get into yeah. you get into stuff, right? You may you may break the remote, you know, end up dropping some out of the kitchen and you try to figure out how do I put this back together before my mom <laughs> before my mom gets home. So basically the- <laughs> a fear of mom's wrath got you interested in engineering. Got me trying to figure yeah, I had to figure out a lot. I had to get pretty creative so again, to your mom, myself. you owe all this to your mom. <laughs> Anger and rage. So you get to uh the high school. Mm-hmm. Um it's it's a uh it's a public high school. Public high yeah. school, yep. And this is more uh, more white. 
Yes, yes. How, talk about, because you spent most of your time in diverse and mostly black schools. Talk mm-hmm. about the experience of adjusting to a school that's predominantly white. Did you have any issues? Were you, was your first experience yeah. going there? Did you feel like, I don't belong? Like, talk about that. Yeah, um, you know, it was, it was definitely different, different for me, just coming from the schools that I that I had come from, um, I still had some level of comfortability because I um, I had I still had like close friends that a couple of cur- close friends that went to that school transferred to that school as well. Mm-hmm. We played basketball together, so we had each other like our mm-hmm. our freshman year. So like I go to that school and immediately, even though I'm new to the district, you know I know mm-hmm. no one besides like the couple of girls that I came here with. Immediately, everyone, be, you know, starts to know you because you're on the basketball team, you're playing well, you, you know, you take the team, the district's first year, mm-hmm. like all these things. Um, so people just automatically begin to kind of accept you. And I know that's not everyone's story. Because you're like the, the you think because you're the star athlete that yeah. people treated you differently. So, you know, it's time to, you know, look at you graduating soon and. I'm assuming your mom said you're going to college, right? You're going to, oh yeah, that, yeah, that wasn't a choice. That wasn't a choice. <laughs> um, talk about that experience. Like, what 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 were you thinking of college, and what what did you want to study at that time? Yeah, Majoring. my mind changed like quite quite a bit. So uh, you start getting mail from um, colleges around like athletic mail. Um, I think your sophomore, junior year. So I started getting all this mail from different colleges from from a sports perspective. That that also like had my mind really focused on college too because in my mind, you know, I'm going to play college sports. You want that was your focus? Yeah, basketball. my focus was getting to college to play to play basketball. In in was it NCAA? NCAA. NCAA. I don't. I didn't play sports. In college, no, so. no problem. <laughs> uh, so, like, I, I had exposure to it really early. I think early on in, in my high school career, I thought I I thought I would be a doctor, and then I took a class where we had to dissect a frog and everything. And I realized I have such a weak stomach. I can't see anything disgusting. Really? Uh, I can't take it. Oh. I can't take it. I can't see a lot of blood or anything. <laughs> <laughs> so I was like, well, that's that's probably not gonna <laughs> that's probably not gonna work out. Um, and then I changed to, uh, I had taken French for a few years. Uh, so I thought maybe I'll do international business, mm. um, that sort of thing. And then I, my mom told me, look, and she did the same thing with my brother as well. She's like, look, you need to do research on different um, careers. Look at how much does it typically cost to get that degree Look at how much they make annually. Um, she was coming from a uh, money side. Oh, huh? she was. Oh, she definitely was coming from a money <laughs> not side. A, not I a passion side, not our, like what you love, but like yeah, look, no, no. She was in a bank account for this. Yeah, job. she was like, it, you know, you need an ROI on this. And I remember in my mind, still at that time, super naive, right? I'm, I'm still young, so in my mind, I'm like. I'm going to the WNBA. I'm nice. <laughs> My mom is thinking like I wasn't growing anymore at that time. So mm. I'm five to mm. tops. Um, and she's like, you know, I probably make more money than the average WNBA player at that time. No and I looked it up and she did. And I was like, well, if you make more money than the average, I need another. <laughs> I need to think about something else myself. Um, so I was, you know, looking at different different career paths. She was like, you, you should look at engineering. 
and I don't know what made her say that, but she's like, you should look in engineering. Actually, said she said, you know, you 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 really you do really well in math and science. Mm-hmm. Um, you're pretty engineering as far uh, as like fix, fixing things. <laughs> um, you breaking things right. Into it. Yeah, if yeah. we're <laughs> breaking things. So I, I I looked into it, um, and I was like, you know, I think I'll do like computer engineering. Um, I think that would be a cool. Did you know what that was at the time? Didn't we didn't fully understand it. Only had you know, only knew what I had researched. Mm-hmm. Had never met an engineer. My mom, um, she works at a large university in St. Louis, and she had a coworker who was an engineer. And I remember she was getting a lot of information from him, mm-hmm. and he was telling her like. Have her, have her go into engineering. Once she, if she does engineering, she can really do anything she wants after that. But get an engineering degree. So she was kind of like pushing me in that direction. Mm. And I looked it up. I was like, ah, computers sound cool. Sounds cool. <laughs> I'll do it as long as I play basketball. <laughs> <laughs> as they were scouting colleges, Dana and her mom put together a short list of options. There were certain things that were must-haves, like a basketball team but also a really strong engineering program. After an extensive search, Dana decides on the Milwaukee School of Engineering in the heart of downtown Milwaukee. Have you ever been to Milwaukee before? Uh, no. What was your impression the first day on campus? Um, I was just shy and, and kind of nervous. I was coming here, you know, Milwaukee, six hours from St. Louis, so I, I was just more nervous than anything. But to you're, be not, on the scholarship. you're not normally nervous, right? It was just this the first time just being away home that made it nervous. I, yeah, I, I'm also. I think I have social anxiety, right? Like to yeah. Did you have social anxiety? In, you didn't have social anxiety in school, high school, and before that, right? Oh, that's because I was popular already. Uh. They already knew. <laughs> um, but like meeting people for the first time is difficult, mm. and you know, gives me a little bit of anxiety. So, and then I was coming here, and they were leaving. Right? They were mm-hmm. they were dropping me off. So my mom and my aunt. Um, and my brother brought me here. They stayed for a couple of days, and then they left. Mm. Um, and then I remember that first night in my dorm, I was like, oh, no. My mom had uh, tried to get me to go to a party. The, the, when Your they mom wanted you to go to the party. Yeah, my mom, she, want, cause she wanted me to socialize. So they had, uh, in the dorms, they had put notes on everyone's door around this. Like, it wasn't like a, a crazy party, but mm. it was like an introduction party mm. for, like, the new. And my mom was like, you should go. You should go, and I was like, "No, I want to. I want to spend time with you guys before you leave." So I ended up not going. But that's how shy I was. I like, wow. I didn't want to go to the thing. I, I, I didn't think you were. You seem very. very I hide out. it. I, I hide it well. You hide it well. Thank you. <laughs> um, so you're at MSOE Computer Engineering, right? Yes. Computer Engineering. Computer Engineering. Um, but MSOE was a big culture shock for me. It was. This was drastically different. Like, you know, I've been in schools where obviously I'm. You know, we're the minority, but um, my high school, if I had to guess, was 70-30, maybe 75-25. This was like no one, right? Um, and none none of the, the staff. You know, I, I had grown up seeing black teachers. No black professors. The whole four um, years you were there, you didn't have a single one, huh? No. Wow. Uh, no, I don't think so. Um, no, it, do you feel like going back? Do you feel like if you went to a predominantly black high school, would the experience trajectory be different? Especially what you hear in the news and how those schools are funded differently. 
Yeah, I, I, abs- absolutely. I think that I think that we all know about the disparities mm-hmm. on like inner city schools, you know, pre- predominantly black schools, and the the lack of resources mm-hmm. and um, access and exposure that they that they have to things. Um, I always tell the story that I never I never met an engineer, and I never I never personally met an engineer, and I never took a programming class before I ended mm-hmm. up on a college campus there mm-hmm. to, for for engineering. You know, so I'm really passionate about, like, making sure that I go back, um, you know, speak to young people and that sort of mm-hmm. thing uh, so that they see some type of representation mm-hmm. or um, reflection of themselves in, in like, STEM careers. Mm-hmm. Um, because I think, you know, had I... Um, I got lucky and I ended up finding it anyway, but there are mm. many kids out there that, that don't. So right? I think about that whole magnet program you were talking about and how they pulled you out. Yeah. And the other kids that probably never got opportunity to go to that, Absolutely. never got that chance to be inspired and yeah. just because it's selective. And, you know, I think about that for me because I went to my parents basically, you know, got in fights in Atlanta. Like my dad when we go to the, the schools in Atlanta. Mm-hmm. And my mom said, no, we're going to the, the white high schools because yep. I got in fights. Like, my dad's like, we want him to grow up to be a man. He needs to be tough, like, mm-hmm. be around his own kind, that kind of thing. And then and I always think about if I didn't go to this school, I was like eight blacks out of my class, out of uh, oh, wow. 800. <laughs> wow. <laughs> um, and, and I always think about would my trajectory because I got, I was in drama club, I was in chess club. Yeah, like, you got exposed to different things, like right? Like black high schools at that time probably didn't have any of that stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, I was, I did learn, luckily my parents bought a save up, bought a computer, I learned computer programming at 10. Nice. You know, and it just, my parents saw that and, you know, I had that kind of same kind of parenting and they saw yeah. things around and, and I think it's just, I was lucky. Yeah. You know, I was I like, agree. just because, that's not the average story for no, us. It's really not. And I, I always say that, like, my life, you know, when people ask, like, how did you get, you know, yeah, you were in engineering and then you're VC. And um, my life is, is really a series of, it, it's like the result of a series of opportunities that I, I wasn't prepared for when it mm-hmm. first came to me or even knew that I, I needed. Um, but when I look back, you know, on things, I'm like it's just a series of opportunities that I, I, I took advantage of. Like, mm-hmm. So I went to the magnet school, and I was when we were in those projects and stuff. I actually was involved. Like yeah. I, I was interested in it. Because um, I think, yeah, I think about that. Like you know, average white kid in the family in the suburbs don't even think about this. It's just natural. Yep. You're supposed to get this kind of stuff in school. Call it luck, hard work, or a combination of both. School-wise, things were going really well. Dana was hitting her stride in her classes. But culturally, Milwaukee still felt a bit off. The entire time, um, like my, my even my freshman year, I kept telling my mom, I'm like, I don't see any black people. I'm downtown. I'm like, I don't think Milwaukee <laughs> has black people here my mom was like you can't like it's just not possible for the city not to have like look at it statistically but you know i'm 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 literally walking to classes like downtown milwaukee you do not see it's different now yeah but 
2006, I was not saying, I was like, literally, they don't, they, they don't exist. So my mom, kept, I kept saying, I want to come home. And she'd say, why? I was like, I just don't feel, I don't feel You want to leave the school and transfer. I want to leave MSOE and I want to come home and transfer. And she was like, first, she would always give me a, a hurdle or a goal or a milestone. First, it was like, whoa, wait until basketball season. You'll meet some people and then you'll probably like it. So, you know, basketball season kicks off, you know, in the fall. If I got here around late August, early September, basketball was going to be starting, you know, October, November time frame. So I, I wait and, you know, I join the team. And obviously, yeah, you have camaraderie, you have your mm-hmm. teammates and everything, but it's still the same. Were there any black people on the team? Me. You're the only black person on the basketball team? Yes. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, coming back to when it transferred, like, did you ever consider any HBCUs at all? I, it did cross my mind, um, especially when I was thinking about transferring. I was, uh, I knew my mom was going to ask me, well, like, where, where do you, where are you going to go if you, if you, if you leave? So I started researching a little bit, you know, H- HBCUs. Like I didn't have a ton of exposure to mm-hmm. HBCUs. I like had this kind of list for her, but she's like, no, wait until basketball season. I did that, and we talked about it later. And I was like, no, I'm, I'm still like. I'm right ready to come home. She's like, just get through your, just get through your. First she didn't want year. you to come home. She didn't want you. No, back. she told me, yeah, well, if you leave, where are you going? Because you're not coming here. <laughs> you're going through school, college. You're mm-hmm. finally about to graduate. What's going through your mind about to graduate? You're like, what is? Were you were you convinced? Did your mom convince you to stay here longer or what? Yeah. She Did you want to leave after graduation? Like, what was going on? No. Um. You know, she 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 convinced me to stay at MSOE specifically. She had no tie to Milwaukee, so she didn't care if I, I went elsewhere. Mm. But I started interning at Johnson Controls when I was a sophomore. Okay. Um, and so came up doing software development at Johnson Controls, and then when I graduated, they made an offer, an mm. ICE offer. And so where are you going to go? <laughs> You're going to stick with what you know? I kind of, at that time— um, you know, I had started to build my build my network a little mm-hmm. bit in Milwaukee. So I ended up staying because I had a job opportunity here. After the break, we pick up with Dana after she graduates MSOE with her engineering degree. How she began laying the foundation for a venture capital firm and the most important things she learned in the process. Next on Diverse Disruptors. Support for Diverse Disruptors Season 2 comes from your membership and Verizon, helping 1 million small businesses through its Small Business Digital Ready program. This online curriculum is designed to give small businesses the tools to succeed in today's digital world. More information at citizenverizon.com. Support for Diverse Disruptors Season 2 comes from your membership and Northwestern Mutual. Northwestern Mutual is making investments and supporting programs that create a diverse and inclusive tech and entrepreneur community locally and nationally. Information on tech advancement, venture investments, and careers at innovation.nm.com. Support for Diverse Disruptors Season 2 comes from your membership and from UW-Milwaukee. UWM believes innovative ideas don't only belong to business majors. The UWM Lubar Entrepreneurship Center aims to help students in all majors develop creative ideas, advance careers, 
and get startups started. UWM.edu. Support for Diverse Disruptor Season 2 comes from your membership and Generator, a platform for the creative economy that connects startup founders, musicians, and artists. Information can be found at generator.com. Tariq Moody here, back with Dana Guthrie on Diverse Disruptors Season 2. By this point in her journey, she's graduating from MSOE with a degree in computer engineering. But unlike so many black professional early 2010s, especially for a city that has been known as the worst for black people, Dana decides to stick it out in Milwaukee after finishing school. So you get out, you graduate, Johnson Controls. Yeah, I started off in... um and software development. If you're not familiar with Johnson Controls, it's a global company that used to be headquartered in Milwaukee before moving its corporate offices to Ireland in 2017. They make equipment to control fire suppression systems, heating and cooling for big buildings, and more. Talk about the actual job and what were you doing at Johnson Controls? So I would work on um, programs that were used to like configuring commission uh, large commercial uh, facilities. Um, so thinking thing complex, like a lot of our verticals or our, our bigger verticals were like higher ed. Um, so university campuses, just because they have so much infrastructure, all these different buildings, um, health, healthcare campuses mm-hmm. was, a, was another uh, big one. Um, and so started off doing that. Um, I came up through their engineering, engineering org. I spent a little time in sales and ops, but I realized that ah, that's not, <laughs> not really for me. And then, you know, in the later, latter part of my career, when I started to kind of grow within the company, I was in the product management. So I managed their largest um, uh, global building software portfolio. And while you're there, you got you got a couple patents. Yeah. So you're there, you know, doing amazing things, getting patents. Um you know, you had a awkward college life. Yep. Now you're in corporate world. How was that like? You know, you hear the story, especially of black folks, black women, especially in roles when you are. And how was that experience like? Especially in a city that you like didn't want to be here. <laughs> I think when once by the time I got into Johnson controls I was so accustomed to being you know having been at MSOE I was so accustomed to being around engineers right mm. predominantly white male that it, it was no longer you got like used a to thing it. for me yeah I was, I was pretty pretty used to it I think what I had to get used to in corporate in the corporate world was having a voice like in being confident enough to share my ideas share my thoughts in meetings um how, and, and that I, took time for you. That that did take time. I didn't immediately have that. I, I was actually lucky lucky enough. Like I would kill like every project that I'm working on, and like I, I did really well. But I had this one manager who, um, he would always ding me in one area, and it was the area of just like speaking up and being being vocal and sharing your ideas. And he he challenged me hard. Like, mm. and this was a white guy. Well, he, uh, somebody challenged you to Yeah, he up. challenged me. He mm. said, you know, like, I think you have really good ideas and things. And you, you just That's rare. They hear afraid. in a corporate world, like most people would never tell. Oh, yeah. 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 I got I got really like one thing that I can say about um, and just my experience. Right. I think I got lucky in having 
um, a number of key mentors, like mm. at different points in my life where I feel like I really needed them. Like early in my professional career, you're a recent grad. Um, you're shy. Like I said, I'm shy. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, I'm in, you know, I'm in these meetings and like we're, they may throw around a problem statement. And in my mind, I'm thinking like the answer to this is so obvious, but I won't say it because I'm like, it can't be this obvious and no one else has said it. So let me just shut up and not say anything. Mm. But when I would get one-on-one with people or like outside of that meeting setting, can, I would you, yeah. communicate those things. And so my my manager at that time um, actually told me like, no, you need to speak up in the meetings and say this kind of stuff. Like, this is good. You should you should do it. And anytime I didn't, he would ding me. Like it would, it would come up. Mm. Um, so he kind of pushed me to be more vocal and that sort of thing. Mm. Then we get to the fun part, uh, spending other people's money. <laughs> so where did this idea of venture capital and all this, you're deep in the computer engineering, deep in the patents, and you're just like, yeah, startups, venture capital, I want to do something. Where did that come from? Um, you know, so I had been connected to the entrepreneurship ecosystem in St. Louis because like a number of my friends were starting companies, some of them tech companies. Um, even my 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 best friend um, from high school, her name's Erica. She had started a tech company, and I would kind of like advise a little bit mm-hmm. um, on some of the things that she was she she was doing, and others others were doing. So I was like connected to entrepreneurship in that way, and I would always wonder like. How do you get money? Like whenever we would talk about the development. So you weren't thinking like. Where's my company? You were thinking like how to, where does money coming from? Yeah, yeah. I was wondering like how do you know, Facebook is a thing mm-hmm. at this time, right? And you're like, I'm like, how did he, how did he do that? And you realize, oh, he he raised private mm-hmm. equity, venture capital dollars, um, and things. So uh, at that time, that was kind of like my only con- connection to it. Um, and I started to research and learn about like. Accredited versus non-accredited. Um, and what's the difference for those people who don't know? Yeah. Investor, like, so you're investing in a company. Yeah. There's uncredited and accredited. What does that mean? Yeah. So that's a that's a um, a definition that tries to define who's qualified uh, enough to um, invest in kind of these private deals. Um, and so an accredited investor is you know an individual that either is made. 200 k per year every year for the last two or three years um, or who has a net worth of a million excluding their primary residence. Mm. Um, and technically now the rules are changing a bit, you know, or transitioning a little bit. So it seems unfair. Someone brought up a pack that it's okay if I'm on credit, but I can go put a, any amount of money in a casino. Yeah. It's very rich to get richer. Kind you of know, thing. I can buy a bunch of lottery tickets. I can buy ten thousand dollars lottery tickets. No one, there's no, no, no one cares. But if I want to, hopefully, have some money in my return and better chances than a lottery ticket to put ten thousand dollars in a company, I can't do that because I don't have two hundred thousand dollars a year or I don't have a million dollars. That seems absolutely. I mean, your mind, your mind went exactly to where my mind went when I was like researching and learning about this stuff. And then I think on the other side, they'll say right, like they don't want people. 
um, you know, giving their money to individuals without understanding the consequences of you may lose this completely. But I definitely thought the same, same thing. Same thing with lottery. <laughs> like, yeah. like that's, I definitely that's... thought the I definitely thought the same thing. So um at that time I knew like I'm not personally accredited. Um but I I had built up a network um in Milwaukee where I felt like I knew some folks who might be mm-hmm. who might be accredited. And even more importantly I think I thought that I knew some black people who might be accredited individuals um i had gone through uh like a leadership program in milwaukee called the african-american leadership program Mm -hmm. so aalp is you know a program for african-american leaders to to young leaders to be involved in and i had made connections through that through that uh program to where i felt like i might have a network of folks who might be accredited so in my mind i was like well i could do a fund um, but I can't do a fund without, I'm an engineer still, I can't do a fund without doing some customer discovery. So I went and talked to some of those folks about like... Were you, were you reading about all this stuff? And you were yeah. just learning all that? Yeah, I was just like researching, you know, I learned about the friends and family round and mm. then my mind immediately goes to, I wouldn't be able to get a friends and family round. I know many of my friends wouldn't be able to yeah, get a Yeah, that's another issue with round. the whole... The whole startup ecosystem is like, if, if, you know, especially a, a, a black founder has a great idea, normally they don't have, a, hey, yeah. pops, can I get $20,000 to race your money on for something maybe? Yeah. <laughs> like, they, we don't yeah. have that. Or kinda. no interest, you know, no interest loans. Mm. Can you just let me borrow something for a yeah. minute? Um, yeah, so I, I learned about the fr- friends and family around, and I had similar thoughts on, like, m- most of us, we, we probably wouldn't be able to, we wouldn't be able to do that. And so mm-hmm. that kind of got my mind going. Um, and like I said, I initially thought that I would start a fund. This is years ago. Um, but I went and talked to some of those people um, about it. And one specifically ha- had experience in private equity. He mm-hmm. managed his own uh, his own firm. And I remember him telling me, like, no, no one's going to gonna commit dollars to you like you have a technical background but you've done nothing in space no one's gonna commit dollars to you right and he was right um but what he did say is but me you know i'd be willing to show up and potentially uh hear hear a pitch right um and so i i was um at that time i was involved in certain angel networks as an advisor angel networks if you're unfamiliar with this concept Here's how it works. Angel investor networks are sort of like venture capital firms, but on a smaller scale. The investments are typically smaller, and instead of one company or entity using its own money, angel networks are made up of a group of credited investors who pool their dollars together. But despite the angel name, these networks are still centered on making smart investments and turning a profit. Dana joins a local Milwaukee group called Golden Angels. In this role, she is serving as an advisor with Golden Angels, and it would lay the groundwork for her to create her own angel network called Alchemy Investors. So you're doing this with Golden Angels, and I I guess I first met you, like, when you launched Alchemy. Yep. Talk about the steps from Golden to Alchemy. Like, what was that yeah, journey so process like? Based on my experience in, in Golden Angels, and shout out to Tim Keen because Tim was the one who told me, like, just go do it. I was like, well, how do I do this? And he was like, just go do it. 
So it kind of pushed me over the ledge too. But the intent, like having that experience with Alchemy and having done this customer discovery and some of these conversations with some of the black accredited folks that I knew, I was like, I feel like I can set up uh, an angel network that is more diverse. Therefore, we should get, you know, more diverse deal flow coming through our doors and more people of color should have access to capital. Typically, these, you know, venture capital and private equity is so black box and so like tightly connected. So if you're not in the network, one, as an investor, you don't see the deal. Mm -hmm. And then two, as the entrepreneur, you don't get an opportunity to pitch the deal. Mm -hmm. So with Alchemy, we had two, two real key things that we wanted to do. We wanted to provide more access to capital for, you know, specifically people of color and black founders. And we were really trying to cover that friends and family round. So our, our check sizes were going to be smaller, but you know, we knew that you weren't going to be able to raise $20,000 from your, Mm -hmm. from your family. So we want to help there. Then on the other side, I was learning that while these accredited folks were doing very traditional investing in a lot of means, most of them, not all of them, but most of them weren't exactly familiar with early stage venture capital investing. And so I wanted to figure out if they would be interested in being introduced to this asset class. And Alchemy Angel Investors was a no barrier, low barrier to entry to make that connection. So how long you had Alchemy before you decided to get your own fund? The entire time I had it, I had in my mind that this is ultimately going to be a, be a fund. But I, I think that I started to really put pen to paper on Gateway probably a year and a half to two years into Alchemy. I was starting to formulate, like do research on what would be my theses. So every venture capital firm has a thesis. And what what do you mean by thesis? What is a thesis when it comes to venture capital? Yeah, so your thesis is just kind of, you know, it's your it's your mandate. It's your I shouldn't say mandate. It's your view of the world. Your view of what is the opportunity um, for for your for your investors. So, for example, um, one thing Wisconsin always publishes um, annually. It's called. It's published by the Wisconsin Tech Council their annual venture capital portfolio. Mm -hmm. And so um, this was back in 2019, which actually looked at the data from 2018. I dissected all of that data, Um, all of the deals that were done Mm -hmm. in Wisconsin, their values, where were they? And you'll find that like less than 5% of the venture capital that goes into the Wisconsin ecosystem actually makes it to the city of Milwaukee. Mm. Uh, and it doesn't get better when you look at, at Milwaukee County. I also found that most of the deals that were done in like the Milwaukee County area were like larger, later deals. So large check sizes, million, mm. $2 million deals. So in my mind, there's a gap at the earliest of stages, like the pre-revenue. And also in my mind, investment is a game of numbers. That's what every investor will tell you. So why is it that within the state of Wisconsin, the most populous and most diverse city that we have is undercapitalized? For me, that looked like an opportunity. In Milwaukee, you know, you hear this about certain, like, a lot of Rust Belt cities. Milwaukee is a prime example, like, 
conservative, not politically conservative, but conservative when it comes to investing. A, a lot of a lot of Milwaukee's money was made through manufacturing, mm. traditional manufacturing. A lot of today's companies are tech mm. data driven. So to go to those same people who are the people who have capital. And here, they're looking at that like, why like, would I, invest why would in this? I, you know, you're telling me you're going to make money on data. I don't get it. Uh, mm. So there's there's a little bit of disconnect there. Um, but I don't, you know, honestly, I don't buy all that because they say Madison has a university. Well, I would argue that Milwaukee has many universities, Marquette mm. University, UWM. MSOE. MSOE has some of the top tech talent right there on their campus. Um, so I, I don't know, like Milwaukee has all the in, all the, the ingredients. ingredients to be super successful. If you look at affordability, uh, universities per per capita. Uh, large corporations per capita, like any of those metrics, all the things that you would think, you know, accelerators. We have uh, generators, nationally ranked accelerator. Mm. Yes, the blueprint, blueprint program, black great black-led accelerator focused on minority startups. So you have all these ingredients, but for whatever reason, like the green, it's, not making, like, it's not making a dish. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And so it's when I was still thinking, on the shelves, yeah, when I was thinking through the theses and like the differentiation and all of that with Gateway, I knew that you know we we really had opportunity in Milwaukee County specifically because I know that when you read that report, there is a narrative that like Madison and Milwaukee do the best in terms of venture capital in Wisconsin. But look at it on a per capita basis, and it's not. It's, mm. it's, it's Milwaukee does just as bad as the rest of the mm-hmm. as bad as the rest of the state. So that looked like opportunity. And then I also realized that, you know, from people coming from the areas where I came, I grew up initially low to moderate income areas. Those folks face different challenges. Mm-hmm. Like they just they just have different you know different problems, um, things that others don't quite get because they haven't had to experience it Mm. and so i feel like they have solutions to big problems that could also be solved so i realized there was no one focusing specifically on low to moderate income areas either seeing this gap motivated dana not only because it was a good business opportunity but she also saw a chance to make a real difference in low and moderate income communities by investing in businesses and entrepreneurs that are historically underestimated a term that harlan hamilton uses she could accomplish both goals, making smart investments in communities that need it most. So what did Dana do? So I left Johnson Controls in November of 2020. And let's go back. You, you decided you feel like you made the right decision, I guess, right? You felt like were you, when you jumped ship from Johnson Control, were you scared? Like, first off, were you like, will, what were you sitting there like, what am I doing? I, was your husband saying go or like, <laughs> are you sure about this? No, he was super supportive. Okay. So, my husband and my my the rest of my family were super supportive. Um, you know, I won't lie. Like I was at the time, I was making decent money at Johnson yeah, Controls. Yeah, like, so this was, and then when I left, you know, they didn't just let me walk. They did try to keep you fight. They did put up, you know, different <laughs> different packages and things to try to make me reconsider. Um, so it wasn't an easy decision, but I knew that. In the back of my mind, I had done, I had done everything that I could do to set this up to be successful. If I had done everything that I had done and this doesn't work, I walk away from it with no regrets because I knew. I, I mean, I, I I did all of the studying, 
Uh, I joined and participated in angel groups before I started and launched my own. I went through a nine-month venture cap one-on-one venture capital program with Ken Johnson of all people meeting at six and seven a.m. before I go into work at Johnson Controls. So, um, in my mind, I had set it up. I had, you know, uh, Greater Milwaukee Foundation, who thankfully came in as an LP and a limited partner in, in Gateway. They were a hundred thousand dollar investor in alchemy first mm. and so i had built that relationship up and like i i had the connections there where i felt like if i do this i should be able like you know i should be able to do it. if if this doesn't work with everything with all these things in a row it wasn't gonna work it Feel, won't work feels like you got your basketball celebrity back in a different way <laughs> I don't know about that. I don't like know you're all, about that. You're all over the news here. People like having on panels. It's like, yeah, you got your basketball dream in a different way. That's probably, you know, that's probably, there's probably some accuracy to yeah. that. I'm more, you know, like I'm comfortable in sport. Like that's where I'm most comfortable. Mm. I'm comfortable in sport and in, in competition, regardless of what it is. I'm comfortable in that. Venture capital, I'm a little uncomfortable in this. In the aspect that when you're in basketball, you're not the only one. There's a ton of great mm-hmm. talent in basketball that you're going up and you're competing against. But like a lot of the accolades and like the the articles and like the stuff in venture capital is like, oh, you're the only one, or you're you're the first one, mm-hmm. or you know that sort of thing. So it's still a little un- uncomfortable for me mm-hmm. um, getting used to this. Like even I have a hard time right now. When someone in the past would ask me, what do you do? I would say, oh, I'm an engineer. And they'd say, what type of engineer? I'd say computer or software because I did software after. Right now, when someone asks me, what do I do? I always hesitate. Why? Have this no is clue. your baby. This is. I have no clue. This is like your I feel like. Passion. I know. I know. I feel like when I say like, oh, I'm a venture capitalist, it sounds like super pretentious, <laughs> you know, or, or, or most people don't even understand what that means right off the bat. So yeah, like, what speaking of that. And what's a venture back company look like? A, what is it? Yes, a venture backable company has to have enough scale to it to make the investment worth it. So let's take a typical, I'm going to speak very, this is all general and like mm. averages and stuff. Um, so don't take it at 100%, mm. but you know, just in general, you have a 10 company portfolio. You're investing at the earliest stages. Mm-hmm. At least fifty percent of that portfolio goes to zero, meaning they They're lose shut down or complete, go away, yep. like whatever. They go out of business. They lose your entire investment. This is the reality of venture capital. First, the risk. At least fifty percent, probably closer <laughs> to seventy percent. But I'll say fifty. Then you're gonna have you know a couple of them that are what's considered walking dead or. They're, they're still up and operating. They're you just know, not they're bringing it. They're fine. Just, but they're, they're not going to return any capital to you. Like you, mm-hmm. you know, as an investor, you won't make money. And then you have one or two that win. And the objective is for those to two make up to make up the losses. And more. And then some. Yes. And that's the reward. It only takes one company to scale up for the whole portfolio to be profitable. Even if between 50 and 70% of those businesses fail when you're evaluating you know these companies you're really you really have to look as the found as the founder or the entrepreneur you're thinking about yourself and you're thinking mm-hmm. about how much money 
you need to raise and, you know, how much money you think that you can get acquired by. But the, you got to understand that the fund manager is thinking about an, a portfolio mm-hmm. and everything that they invest in because they know that they're going to lose on many of them has to have the opportunity to, you know, cover some cover, cover the losses, losses. Of, uh, of the others. And I think that's a natural um, point of contention between like founders and the founder or the entrepreneur and like a venture capitalist. Because I think a lot of founders um, don't really understand that world, right? Don't. And, and, and in their defense, I think that historically venture capitalists have just been bad at just explaining, <laughs> like just open the box, like quit, keep it, quit making it a yeah. black box and just be super transparent. Mm. That's something that we really want to do at Gateway yeah. is like provide this transparency on like the way that we think mm. about things um, to our founders. Where's Gateway five years from now? Five years from now, I hope we already have our, we are already doing some distributions <laughs> to our to our in- investors. Um, we would be, at that point, we'd be out of our, we'd have concluded our, um, uh, investment period. Our investment period is the next four years. Um, so we, we'd only be looking at reinvesting into our portfolio companies. And hopefully we, we have some distribution and um, working on, you know, pushing towards those exit events for a couple of our, a couple of our portfolio companies. What about the next fund? Next yeah, absolutely. Round? Is it like, because right now you, you're 13, you're thinking like 50, 100. Right now, Gateway, primary invest in Wisconsin, it's primarily Southeast companies. Yes. Is the next round going to go beyond that? Or are you going to still stay in this area? It's yet to, de- it's yet to be determined. I'm going to follow the same process that I follow with this one and find the opportunity. I will candidly say that I'm from St. Louis and I want to be able to do mm-hmm. something back home. Mm-hmm. You know, so I don't know if, you know, fun two is looking far in the future, right? We mm-hmm. got to make sure that fun one is successful. We got to get the return here. But, you know, uh, my mouth to God's ears, it is. Then fun two, maybe it's looking at, uh, you know, expanding our reach into the Midwest so that I can make sure that we get some St. Louis companies coming into the portfolio as well. And um, final question, what would you say to somebody, I guess two types of people, who wants the first person who wants to be like you, venture yep. capital, and the second person, someone who comes to you and asks for money? Yeah. So what would you say to those person, the first person who wants to like, I want to, I love Dana's story. I, I have a similar story. I'm very fascinated VC. What what should I do? Yeah, I, w- I would say, you know, um, and it's probably a similar answer for both of them, but like, I don't know if it's just the engineering me or what, but I'm, I'm big on research. Like I'm big on like getting my ducks <laughs> in a row and fully understanding before something is public. So, um, you know, if, if you're the person who wants to do venture capitalists, I would say look around in, in your area to see are there angel networks that you can potentially mm-hmm. plug into um, and, and being comfortable being uncomfortable. Because when I showed up to, you know, some of these pitches for some of these angel networks, I'm the only one. Right. And mm-hmm. you naturally feel like it's, when I was younger, I did this, too. You naturally feel like, oh, this is uncomfortable. I'm going to go. Like, no, stay there. Know that your your differences is your differentiation. 
Um, and that's value add to that room mm. and be confident in that. So I would say go explore, go research, um, learn uh, as, as much as you can on your own and then ask questions. Um, I, and I know that's easier said than done because some people just don't have that network or maybe, uh, you know, don't have the, the, it's not always free to join those angel networks. So, mm. um, that, that's a, that's another problem mm. that we got to figure out mm. too. And then for the entrepreneur, I would say always make sure you understand the, whoever you're going to go talk to research and make sure you understand their investment theses, what they're looking for, you know, how they make money, what what's going to be their expectation mm. of you um, before you actually get into the meeting. Thank you, Dana. Yep. Thank you, Tariq. I appreciate you having me on. I learned so much from Dana Guthrie. She has become a mentor of mine, actually. Someone I look up to very much in this world of venture capital. And she is so down to earth and real about everything. It was such a pleasure to talk to her and share this knowledge with you. I hope you learned as much as I did. Since our interview, Dana has made her first investment through Gateway Capital. It's a Milwaukee-based startup called Tipascript, a tech company working to make prescription drugs more affordable and will be partnering with healthcare providers to deploy their payment assistant programs. Her $400,000 investment will allow the company to scale its staff and build out its platform. Coming up on our next episode of Diverse Disruptors Season 2, a conversation with Ryan Wilson, founder of The Gathering Spot. It's a company that literally is creating space for diverse leaders and innovators to share via co-working. We'll learn how his company has grown, even during the pandemic when in-person working all but stopped. That story next time on Diverse Disruptors. And while we have you, a reminder to please subscribe to this podcast so you don't miss the rest of the season two. We have two more episodes to go, plus a full first season. So subscribe, dig in, and learn along with me. You can find it all on the app you're using now or at radiomilwaukee.org slash disruptors. I'm Tariq Moody, and I'll talk to you on our next episode of Diverse Disruptors from Radio Milwaukee. Diverse Disruptors Season 2 is presented by University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee, Northwestern Mutual, and Generator, with support from Verizon, United Way's Tequity, and Alverno College, with handcrafted sonic inspiration from the License Lab. Diverse Disruptors is hosted by Tariq Moody, executive produced by Nate Imig, and audio engineering by Kenny Perez, segment producing by Salam Fatayer, and 88.9's web editor, is Evan Retleski. Radio Milwaukee's marketing team is led by director Sarah Lahr with creative and coordinating support by Aaron Bagada. Community engagement by Maddie Reardon. Dory Zori is 88.9's program director and Kevin Sucker is our executive director. Of course, biggest thanks to our members for making this and all content from Radio Milwaukee possible. If you're interested in learning more about Radio Milwaukee membership, visit radiomilwaukee.org and click the orange heart. And while you're there, check out our other podcasts, including Diverse Disruptors Season 1. That's at radiomilwaukee.org slash podcasts. Diverse Disruptors Season 2 is an original podcast production of 88.9 Radio Milwaukee.